morning. Um, the first Bible reading is from Acts chapter 17. Uh, it's verse 1 to 9. That When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came across Thessalonica, and where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and providing that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Then Jesus, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you as the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-daring Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace and formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd. Um, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. The yeah, second Bible reading is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 to 12. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more and the love of all you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. For this, for all this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us all as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day that he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our Father may make you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Robert. Well, good morning. So we're beginning uh, this new series in, in 2 Thessalonians 1. I asked Robert to read that Acts chapter 17. Read the rest of the chapter. There's a bit more. Um, just to give you a gist of, you know, we don't have to guess about the context of the church at Thessalonica. We've got the story how it began. Therefore, is in Acts. But I wonder, how good are you at waiting? You know, are you one of these people that can just wait patiently? Comfortable knowing that something's going to happen, but it hasn't yet? 
And how do you fill your time whilst you wait? Are you one of those people that immediately gets the phone out and starts checking on something? Or do you just bask in the quiet moment? I think how we, de- how we wait depends on what we're waiting for. There's a great, if you're into social media, there's a great Instagram account called Miserable Men. And this bloke collects photos of a particular kind of waiting that lots of us can relate to. Waiting in shops. All right. I mean, just the idea of it makes my legs feel like lead and my mouth goes dry, my eyes go droopy, waiting in shops. And I'm not alone. Look at these guys. So, you know, you've probably seen scenes like this outside shops. <laughs> For some people, it's just, it's just all too much. You know, I think some of us have been there, especially when it's like, you know, a makeup shop or something like that. And you... <laughs> This poor guy's literally left holding the bag. And sometimes, you know, there's not good provision of seating or anything, and you just got to make your own way. And, uh, different ways of waiting. I think some of us can relate, judging from your last. But for Christians, for, for disciple apprentices of Jesus, a central part of our relationship with him, the truth about him, is that he's promised to return So right now, Jesus is ruling from heaven, so that place which is real, but uh, belongs to the spiritual realm that's invisible to us at the moment. But he's promised that there will be a day when he returns. So verse 7 in your passage, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire. So there's a day when Jesus will come to finally judge, to get rid of evil once and for all. And bring those who belong to him into perfect eternal life. No more tears. No more pain. Only perfect joy. And it will be really obvious and public and unmissable. And what this second letter to the Thessalonians helps us to know. Is how to wait well. Whilst we wait for Jesus to return. Waiting well. So a bit of the context about this church that Paul, the Apostle Paul is writing to. So we saw in Acts 17 that this church has been established in a hostile environment. You know, the gospel has gone down like a lead balloon amongst some of them. And the Apostle Paul had been literally run out of town. He had to leave prematurely just as loads of people were starting to become Christians. And he hadn't been able to return. So when he gets reports that mostly this church at Thessalonica is going pretty well, he's he's really encouraged. So they're a church under pressure. From the get-go, they've been under pressure from outside persecution. And now they're under pressure from, from the inside, from some false teaching taking hold. So that vacuum left by Paul not being able to come back has meant some dodgy teachers have come in. You know, you can imagine them saying, oh, look, if Paul really cared about you, had something to tell you, he'd have come back, but he's not. Here's what you really need to know. And so they've introduced false teaching, and that false teaching has left the Thessalonians not looking forward to Jesus' return, but worried about it and confused about it. And they're wondering how they should wait in the meantime, how they should wait well. So the question for them, it's the same questions we sometimes have. In face of all this struggle, is it worth it? 
you know, why bother keeping going? And how should we live whilst we wait for Jesus? So there's an outline in your leaflets there. We'll uh, look, first we'll look at why Paul is thankful to God for how they've gotten so far. And then the middle, the sort of biggest bit in the middle, we'll look at what we've got to look forward to in the future to keep us going in the here and now. And finally, we'll see how to live now in light of the future that we're waiting for. So first of all, thanks for waiting. Our first point. So, facing opposition and trials and persecution isn't necessarily a bad way to wait for Jesus' return. It's not necessarily a bad way to wait for Jesus' return. So Paul reckons, verse 3, we ought always to thank God for you. Not we ought to thank God for you, but we don't. No, it's the the most appropriate response to what we've heard about you is to give God thanks for you. And why? Because this church being attacked and opposed and beaten up hasn't weakened them. Look at the results in verse 3. Their faith is growing and their love for one another is increasing. So much so that Paul goes about boasting about their perseverance. At the Church of the Year Awards, they should get a special prize. So that God is thanked more. It's not that persecution for following Jesus is an is a inherently good thing. You know, you're not expected to ask for it. You're not expected to especially like it. But if you follow Jesus, suffering for that is inevitable. But it's not inevitably destructive. God can use the difficulties it, it, that following Jesus brings to grow us. Um, I've got a friend in the UK who works for a, a non-league football team. Um, that's the sort of fifth tier of professional football. So about as low as you can get, really. Um, and he affectionately collects photos. Now, these aren't showing on here. Robert, is there some photographs that say non-league football grounds? No. Okay, it's not synced. He collects photos of these really sort of daggy-looking footballs. Saying, you know, like sort of a, um, a converted shipping container as, as the changing rooms and stuff like that. And I quite like those photographs because I think it shows, because uh, it shows these grounds are bad, you know, they're run down, but they represent a perseverance under duress and against the odds with, with no, uh, no glory in the there and then. And it shows a sort of authenticity to the supporters and it shows their love, their genuine love for their team. And our persevering through persecution and trial, through hard times, it shows our love for God and for one another. And it also grows our love for God and one another. God will use trials and opposition to grow us so much that we end up thanking him for the opportunity to persevere. If we do face trials and persecution, what should we take it to mean? Does it mean that God's forgotten us or that he's punishing us? 
No, Paul says the opposite. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. It's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Our suffering isn't evidence that we're far from God. It's evidence that we truly belong to him. So it's like if you lived in occupied France during World War II. So if you ran into the Gestapo, the secret police, and you were one of the people going along quietly with the occupation, or even worse, collaborating with the Germans, then you'd face less trouble. But if you were found resisting the occupation, like Christians resist sin, the world, and the devil, it was evidence that you were part of that underground resistance and you would face getting shot. Facing trouble was evidence that you were on the right side. So don't wait for life to get easier before getting on with living for Jesus. Get on with living for Jesus by faith for him. Knowing full well that it will bring you more trouble than the quiet life. But don't despair when you're hated for loving Jesus. Living for him isn't about a gentle life suitable for fluffy kittens. It's more like being a crash test dummy than a fluffy kitten. And take heart. God will use our troubles for our good and for his glory. And all together it shows that you're right with God and he trusts you to represent him through trials as a star witness. Now, of course, all this is relatively easy for us in comfortable Australia. You know, it's getting a bit harder, but we aren't likely to lose our homes or be physically attacked for belonging to Jesus. What about our brothers and sisters around the world where that is what they're up against? So a quick example, first one I found on the Open Doors website. In a village in India, Pastor Sujit led 60 people to Christ. But when he started building a church for them, opposition came. Hindu extremists destroyed his church three times. Each time they came, they beat Sujit. On the last attack, they beat him so badly that the church members had to rush him to hospital. They filed a complaint with police, but no action was taken. This is a pastor who's faithfully following Jesus' commission to make disciples. Shouldn't God prove his, uh, his work worthwhile? And why do those extremists, why does God let them get away with it? Where's the comfort for that pastor? Well, Paul encourages the Thessalonians by looking ahead to the future. He encourages us by getting us to look ahead at what you're waiting for. So our second point, what you're waiting for. We can keep persevering in faith through trials and opposition because we know that in the end, God will make everything right. Everything will be fair and square. Justice will be done. Completely. No loose ends. Verse 6. God is just. Do you believe that? Do you think 
that God is fair. It promises that one day in history, Jesus will return, this time to judge. It'll be unmistakable, be powerful, irresistible. And when he does, what's going to happen? Verse 6. Here's the headlines. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. And that's unpacked in verses 8 to 10. So for those who trouble us, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Trouble repaid. And for Christians who are suffering for our faith, verse 10, on the day he comes, Jesus comes, to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. So two contrasting eternal, everlasting outcomes. Everlasting destruction versus sharing in glory with Jesus. Remember, Paul's writing this to encourage suffering Christians that justice will be done and and our faith that's so hard to live by now will be proved right in eternity. So if you, if you are a follower of Jesus, hope that you're encouraged by that. That's great news. But the flip side of that, punishment, everlasting destruction, shut out from God's presence, that's pretty confronting, isn't it? Well, that's talking about hell, isn't it? Oh, why do I have to talk about hell? Why can't we just talk about God's love, keep it all nice? You know, at this point, it's tempting for me to give you a talk about how hell isn't as bad as we really think it is. Because I've got friends and family. We've all got friends and family who we love, who our lives are richer for having them in it, but who we know do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But I can't soften I can't soften it. Jesus describes eternal life without him as eternal darkness and eternal fire. Now, yeah, that symbolic, surely, yes. But symbolic of what? It doesn't sound good, does it? You don't want to spend eternity like that. Some people have tried to soften it by saying, well, hell isn't for eternity. Rather, everlasting destruction means a sort of a one-off annihilation, ceasing to exist, that is everlasting in its effect. And that would be a lot easier to stomach, actually. But if you take all of the biblical data, everything that's said, especially stuff that Jesus said, it's hard to come to that conclusion. It's hard not to conclude that Jesus reckons life for those who don't believe and trust in him as their Lord and Saviour is eternal and very undesirable. But I do want to say three things about this judgment that's coming. Not to soften the blow, but perhaps to remove some of our preconceived ideas we might have. 
So this judgment that's coming is fair and proportionate. It's characterized in relation to God's glory. And the real scandal is that any of us escape. Don't worry if you've not written those. I'll go through those one at a time. So first of all, three things. First of all, it's fair, fair and proportionate. We'll just enjoy the music. I'll just acknowledge that it's there, and now we'll ignore it. Okay. So first of all, this judgment, it's fair, fair and proportionate. And it means that justice will be done. So an old uh, colleague of mine from the UK, following me on Facebook, um, he's been helping his daughter to set up um, an Airbnb luxury apartment. And they've really enjoyed putting it together and renting it out, and it's all doing well. But right now, they're heartbroken because a married couple booked in and went on a drug-fueled rampage. They smashed two um, TVs up. They blocked up the toilet and smashed the toilet bowl. They slashed all the curtains. They caused thousands of pounds worth of damage. And this is what he said in his comment about it. I've edited it, it's worded more strongly, but um, wouldn't it? These scum are thankfully a local couple, and the police are involved. Hopefully, justice will be served. And once it is, I will plaster their pictures all over Facebook for you all, so that you can hopefully share it locally to teach these low-life amoeba what decent people think of them. And I share that story not because it's un- his reaction is unusual, but... Because it's very usual, you know? Because we all want justice to be done. And we all have that uneasy feeling that people will get away with it. That they'll get away with the evil that they do. You know, someone commented, one of the comments underneath this post says, Don't worry, what goes around comes around. Except that this side of Jesus' return... It often doesn't, does it? But God is just. God is fair. Revelation, in Revelation 20, we read that God judges according to what we have done. And then notice in verse 6, he will pay back trouble with trouble. So I think sometimes we tend to think, well, every sin is sinful, all sin is sin. And all Christians get the same, get eternal glory. So, all unsaved people get the same punishment. But that isn't right. That's not what the Bible says. See, God sees everything. God knows if you helped a little old lady across the road or if you pushed her under a bus. (laughs) The good news about judgment is that the abuser, the murderer, the exploiter, grinding people into poverty... And getting away with it in the here and now. Will get their just desserts. Uh, Romans 12.19 says. Do not take revenge my dear friends. But leave room for God's wrath. For it is written. It is mine to avenge. I will repay. Says the Lord. So it's not that there is no vengeance. It's just that that vengeance belongs to God, the only one who can see everything and weigh everything up fairly and justly. And the good news is that means all of our invisible, unappreciated acts of goodness and sacrifice, they'll be taken into account too. 
And all this means that we're freed, we're freed up to forgive people. See, the reality is this side of Jesus' return, life isn't going to be fair. We will be wronged by people who should know better and who will get away with it. Worse people than you are going to have an easier life than you. But we're freed from being bitter or weighed down by all of that. Because we can be sure God will sort it all out in the end. So forgive. Don't wear God's judgment robes, trying to do his job robes, trying to do his job for him. Now, we don't need to be a doormat, and we should stand up for justice, especially for those without a voice. But don't try and do God's job for him. So this judgment is fair. Second, this judgment is defined in relation to God's glory. So have a look at verse 9. And the construction of this sentence in the original Greek, it means that everlasting destruction is, namely, it can be characterized by being shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. See, we tend to think that the idea of hell is over the top because we fail to see how offensive our sin is. We fail to see how good God is. So in the Bible, whenever humans such as Moses or Isaiah um, catch even glimpses of God, the reaction is always the same. They're overwhelmed by his pure holiness, his total absence of anything bad. And the light of that showing up how sinful they are. It's like um, we tend to domesticate sin. So one time in the UK, Sharon was out in town, got back to her car, she was with her cousin, and there was a bloke in the car trying to steal it. <laughs> he got caught. But he steps out of the car and says, oh, it's, it's all right, love, it's all right. Uh, I've not broken any locks. You know, these are really easy to break into. What you need to get is one of them crook clocks. And, that's it. and like, he genuinely behaved like he thought he was doing her a favour. So he sort of skewed his sort of morality that he was sort of a thief with honour. He'd not broken any locks. So that was okay. <laughs> Sharon's cousin was like, getting angry. Sharon's like, just get in the car. Just get in the car, we'll go. But like that thief, we create our own scheme of what's bad and what's good. And we've got a fair idea of whereabouts we fit in it, don't we? We think we're sort of here somewhere. But God's perfect goodness, his perfect glory, shows up our sin for all its evil. So eternal destruction is being shut out from God's presence and the glory of his might. That is, shut out from God's pure goodness, truth, his loving kindness, his mercy. And when Jesus returns, he'll be the center of everything. Everything and everyone kept in his presence will be unified in him. And the Bible portrays that as an eternal life of perfect joy, perfect goodness, no more tears, no more pain. People say, oh, that sounds boring. There'll be no more boredom. 
But the biggest win any of us can have in life is getting more of Jesus. And we're promised an eternity of perfect union with him. Rejecting Jesus is rejecting that future. Everlasting destruction is the absence of that. In one sense, it's more of what we choose. There's a, a fame, I've always avoided C.S. Lewis quotes because pretty much every preacher does not but I'll let him in this time, okay? Uh, and I don't think this captures everything. We do face-to-face, face God, face judgment. It's not like we just sort of take a different route through the airport and end up in hell. But here's what he says. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there would be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. This judgment is fair. This judgment is defined in absence of God's glory. And third, the real scandal about this judgment is that we're not all facing eternal destruction. Let's think about it this way. Let me ask you, who would, if it was just up to you, who would you let into heaven? So you might say, well, everyone. Let's just let everyone uh, have eternal life. But then you say, well, actually, we're going to let in the terrorists. Are we going to let in that uh, concentrate commandant who enjoyed his job? Well, all right, let's leave them out. How about people who've lived a good life? Let's let them in. But then you've got to decide, where's the line? How good is good? What's the tipping point? Okay, well, let's not make it about being good enough or not. Um, How about sincerity? How about those who really sincerely hold their belief or worldview? But again, you've got to draw a line somewhere. Just how sincere do you need to be to get in? All right, well, forget about morality and forget about religion. What about just being true to yourself? How about everyone who is authentic? Let's let all of those people into heaven. Well, again, how authentic do you need to be? All of us are a bit pretentious at some point in our lives. But even by our own criteria, we'd never measure up enough to let even ourselves into heaven. Even the nicest people you've met have sinned. We've all in some way put other things or people in God's place. We've all pridefully, deliberately rejected his loving, good rule and said, no thanks, I'm in charge here. But the scandal is that God is more inclusive than any of us would be. Anyone who believes in Jesus escapes what we deserve and gets to live in glory. See, God lets people into eternal life with him, people that you and I wouldn't. And he actively seeks people out to be in his kingdom, like a good shepherd chasing after a lost sheep. The fair thing, the right thing, the just and loving thing 
for God to do is punish our sin, shutting us out from his goodness, his glory. But the good news is, Jesus has already been to save us. If we really want to understand sin and hell and God's love, we must look at the cross of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, without sin, gave himself up to unimaginable suffering and death on a Roman cross. Why? To take on himself the everlasting destruction that we deserve. To take on the full measure of God's righteous anger for our rebellion against him. So that we don't have to bear it. On the cross, Jesus suffered that separation from God. So that we don't have to. You know, the cross shows us the seriousness of sin. If that's what it took to keep us out of everlasting destruction, just how offensive, how evil must our sin be? But on the cross, we also see the depths of God's mercy and love for us. In Jesus taking our place, doing everything needed at huge cost, So that we can join him in heaven and avoid the judgment that we deserve. And you can have that assurance today. All you have to do is accept the good news. To believe in Jesus. To trust in his death and resurrection. To save you from eternal destruction. And give your life to him. You know, you can trust Jesus with your life. He's the only one who's given up so much for you, been through so much for you. And he longs for you to share in his glory forever. This is good news that we need to share. That's one of the reasons, what's the main reason we're planting churches. We've got to share this good news that Jesus has done everything needed To stop us getting what we deserve. That we can enjoy eternal life with him. So that people can know the goodness of forgiveness of sin. Of living for Jesus. And enjoying enjoying glory with him. Our final point then. To wrap up. Why you wait. How should we live then. Whilst we wait for Jesus' return. So verse 11, with this in mind, so he's saying, bearing in mind that God will make everything right in the end, get on with living for God, empowered by him. So with this in mind, we constantly pray for you, this is verse 11, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. So his calling there is his call for you to be saved by faith in Jesus. So this isn't saying uh, we're now got to live life worried about whether we do enough good stuff to make us worthy enough to get eternal life, to win eternal life. Because the truth is, none of us were worthy to begin with when God called us and saved us in Jesus. But what it does mean is, don't carry on as you were, as if nothing's happened. You know, we've been saved from sin at great cost. 
So it's at odds. It's in the, going in the wrong direction with our calling, with our new identity in Christ, to keep pursuing a sinful life. So turn away from sin. Keep pursuing God in his ways. We're called to live our lives in response to God's grace to us in Jesus. And Paul prays, verse 11, that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We're freed, freed to get on with doing good things, not to earn our salvation, not worried if it's ever going to be enough, but instead prompted by faith, by knowing that we're already saved. So we're free to get on with those good works, and not under our own steam, but by God's power. And all of this is by grace, God's free, undeserved gift, and for his glory. Verse 12. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So back to our original question that the Thessalonians had, and that we sometimes have. Is it all worth it? Yes. Don't despair at trials and opposition. God will use them to grow us. They're evidence that we belong to him, trusted to be his star witness. He'll use them for his glory. Don't despair at suffering injustice. God will sort it all out in the end. We can forgive and not be bitter, knowing that justice belongs to God. And don't despair that judgment day is coming. Because Jesus has done everything needed to make you right with him. Jesus is the center of everything, and he personally invites you to make him your Lord and Savior. And don't despair waiting for Jesus to return. Get on with good deeds prompted by faith, praying for God's power to do so. Keep persevering by God's grace with one big aim, glorifying Jesus. Amen. Uh, I'll pray. Um, this is where I've been talking about big, heavy, deep stuff. And if you've got more questions, please do grab me at the end or write on the comment card or just get in touch during the week. Have to do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are fair, you are just, you are merciful and full of grace. Thank you that in the end, everything will be made right. Thank you for Jesus, who's paid the price at such enormous cost. That means we can spend eternity with him, sharing in his glory. Please help us to keep going, keep waiting well, uh, doing good works, prompted by faith, empowered by you. Amen.